Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so the organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're talking with John Tamney, the author of When Politicians Panicked. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great, Ron. Looking forward to this show. Me too. Let's get John in here. I'm going to read his bio real quick. John Tamney is political economy editor at Forbes editor of Real Clear Markets, vice president at Freedom Works Center for Economic Freedom. His new book is When Politicians Panicked, The New Coronavirus, Expert Opinion, and a Tragic Lapse of Reason. He's written other books, uh, all excellent, by the way. They're both wrong. Uh, and The End of Work, and Who Needs the Fed, and Popular Economics. John Tamney, welcome to The Soul of Enterprise. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It really means a lot. I'm flattered to be a part of the show. Oh, it's awesome. Well, listen, I think we have a lot of mutual friends. We've had Jeffrey Tucker on. We've had George Gilder on three times. We've had Stephen Landsberg, David Friedman, Mark Skousen. So I, if we went down the list, we probably know a lot of people uh, in common. But John, this, this book of yours, When Politicians Panic, this is a daring book. You essentially argue that we suffered not a medical crisis, but a political, economic, and institutional crisis. How so? Well, what else could it be? The virus had been spreading for months. It was in the news. It was spreading around the world. By all accounts, it spreads faster than the flu. And life was moving along just fine. And then in March of 2020, politicians suddenly decided that they would get involved, that they would take away the freedom of people to live as they were. And to be clear, it's documented fact that Americans across the country were already starting to alter their lives. They were going out less. They're going to re at restaurants less. They were adjusting. They were buying masks. They were buying hand sanitizer. This was global. In Germany, they were selling out of masks and hand sanitizer before the politicians had even start, decided that this was what they thought was a serious thing. And then all of a sudden they intervene. And in short order, in a matter of weeks, tens of millions of jobs are destroyed. Uh, millions of businesses are either bankrupted or severely impaired. And so what else could it be? The virus that was already been there, we, we, it was a known quantity, then politicians involved. So politicians panicked. They chose economic desperation as a virus mitigation strategy, and it's going to be my life's work for many years to make this case over and over again so that hopefully history books have some semblance of balance as to what happened. You know, you point out that even if the initial, like the imperial college models had been real, uh, that the lockdown still wouldn't have been justified because you don't you don't fight an illness with unemployment and bankruptcy and mass desperation. 
why don't why don't you th why do you think people can't grasp that that this is about trade-offs I, I will never understand. I think to some degree you have to ask the question, maybe the better question in a sense is, could this have happened in the year 2000? And as I point out in the book, there's no way. And it couldn't have happened because for the vast majority of Americans in 2000, uh, work was a destination. Internet speeds were way too slow for people to Zoom from home. They couldn't virtue signal on Facebook and Twitter and other social media from home. Well, because, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was still in high school at the time. Uh, entertainment back then, it was a blockbuster night in the year 2000. If you wanted videos, there's no Tiger King to watch on Netflix. There's no streaming. Um, let's never forget that Webvan went public in 1999. It was bankrupt by 2001. So internet groceries was still a distant object. Uber Eats, Postmates, Grubhub, you know, those, those, those businesses where subhuman science deniers deliver you food your door and, you know, rich Americans can say, but, you know, don't, don't, don't knock on the door. Don't, don't come near us. Drop, drop, drop it off at the doorstep <laughs> far from the house. Don't, don't, no, don't come near our kids. You know, you couldn't do any of that because smartphones were a distant object also. And so to some degree it happened because it could happen, but you know, let's let's get back to the bigger point. The bigger the threat, the bigger the lethality of something, the more force is superfluous. What if Imperial College had predicted 20 million American deaths? What about that would require force for Americans to maybe take precautions? And so it, it, it never makes sense. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I love that chapter, that thought experiment of this taking place back in 2000. And like you point out, for 63% of the workforce, work is a place, like it or not. And so are you saying, John, you don't say this directly in the book, but I kind of get the sense that this lockdown only happened because of our wealth. I, I hate to say it because... Uh... I, I know how the two of you think, and I know how we think. I think prosperity and progress are essential. But I make that point in the book that I don't think the media caused this. Um, and I certainly will not blame rich people. I will not blame the entrepreneurs. Uh, their technology proved transformative. Whom I blame in the book are decadent middle-class Americans who've become so divorced from any reality that they would actually accept, oh, yeah, well, wait couple weeks off from, you know, not having to drive into the office, no rush hour. And yeah, we can do this because again, there's lots of subhumans who are too poor to have work, have jobs that they can do from home and they will deliver us food. They will, they will deliver us everything we need to our door. And, and, and so, yes, there is that there is, there's a rage inside the book that this was the most elitist violation of human rights in the 21st century by far a bunch of rich people nail biters decided that they were going to panic and they were going to foist their fear on those with the least who would pay for it right now you say we ask too much of our experts but we also rely on them too much i mean you know, continuously point out that our knowledge of covid won't age well i mean most of our medical knowledge has not aged well if you look back through time um, and, then, and then you make a really interesting point or thought experiment, you know, too bad Dr. Fauci wasn't a shill for Disney because if he was, he would have paid for his mistakes. 
it's essential. Think about what happens when you work in the, in the private sector. You have to be careful. Now, Disney probably has immunologists on staff. Wouldn't you guess they would, uh, given that they have a business that is reliant on crowds of people close together touching the same things? And so what a shame that Fauci weren't working in a market discipline business. So some, pe- some people will hear this. Oh, no, wait a second. If Fauci works for Disney, he'll just deny the, the virus altogether because he doesn't want to hurt the business. Well, that's such a naive and, and just backwards statement. Businesses in the marketplace are valued based on expectations of future earnings. If Disney denied the existence of a virus such that it became a hot zone, a, a, a place of contagion where people were getting sick and dying from having been there, the long-term impact on its business would be would be very perilous and so disney would have every incentive to tell the truth about a virus that was threatening but also to be careful about a virus that that it didn't understand or that it you know based on looking around the world realized okay it's many things none of them terribly lethal fauci's problem is when you work for government you don't have to be correct you can be wrong routinely you can be alarmist routinely and there's no payment. Imagine if, if, if he had been if he had his track record in the private sector, we wouldn't know about him today because he would have been fired and sent back to some lowly job long, long ago. Right. I think you quote Jeffrey Tucker or somebody said markets, you know, the market pays for its mistakes, but politicians weaponize theirs. Yep. <laughs> and stupid should hurt, right? I mean, if you make a mistake, I mean we penalize the market every single day with failure. And they pay for it. Um, so that's a great point. The, the other thing that really kind of blew my mind too, John, in your book is you discuss a March 18th, 2020 interview with FedEx founder, Fred Smith. Talk about that. Cause that was fascinating. Uh, it, it, it fascinated me too, to watch it. Uh, Fred Smith was being interviewed by Brett bear on Fox. It was a wide ranging interview uh, but he's asked, what, what do you think about this virus that's spreading and everything? And he said, well, you know, we've got Wuhan is a very prominent business city inside China. And so naturally, FedEx has a large operation there, uh, 907 employees. Uh, they had for months been passing uh, they had been for months been passing around uh, packages throughout the city and everything. We tested all 907 of our employees, four tested positives, two, two were false positives. But the point Smith made was that all of our employees are in fine shape. You know, they're probably young people. For, again, for months, they'd probably been going maskless in this city, but, but no, no health problems to speak of. And it was one of many market signals from China, the epicenter of the virus, that indicated that, again, it was real. But it wasn't terribly lethal because if it had been lethal, FedEx as a public company would have had to report it long before March that we have a very real situation developing in one of our biggest growth markets that it could severely impair our ability to earn money. And can we add to this that, of course, GM sells more cars in China than it does in North America. Apple sells a fifth of its iPhones in China. There are 4,200 Starbucks in China. Nike is the, Nike's second largest market is China. McDonald's second largest market is China. Look at their share prices in December 
of 2019, January of 2020, February of 2020. They were hitting all-time highs. Does anyone think if the virus had been a major killer in its epicenter, that those stocks would have been continuing to hit all-time highs. So my point with Fred Smith and all these examples is the market's signals from China were very clear that the virus was many things, not lethal, not being one of them. Right. No, I love it. You pointed out that the old Soviet Union couldn't keep Chernobyl off the front pages. And that was back in the 80s when we didn't have the communication tech that we have now. And even the California gold rush in the 80s. 1800s uh you know brought folks from around the world so word gets out and word certainly would have got out that those were some great points well john unfortunately we're up against our first break and folks we'd like to remind you if you want to contact ed or me send us an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com check out the soul of enterprise.com where we'll post full show notes with our conversation with john today and where you can find his books and other of his writings and now a word from our sponsors Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise our guest today is john tamney his book is when politicians panic the new coronavirus expert opinion and a tragic lapse of reason John, I just wanted to clarify something just because I want to I, – I know what your position is, I think, and, and I want to articulate it. 
It's clear that coronavirus was, quote, worse than the flu. There's it's pretty documented that that 10 to 13 percent of there was additional deaths, whether or not they were all contributed to the the virus or not, I believe can can be disputed. But there was something going on there. So you're not disputing this. You're you're not saying that taking precautions during a pandemic was unnecessary. But your subtle point is you're saying that government telling us what those precautions were, when they should be in place and for how long was the problem. Did I state that well? You stated it perfectly well. No one is denying that a virus was spreading and that it was real, that it was worse than the flu. But that speaks to why the government force was superfluous. And even at the two-week point when they said, okay, well, no, we always do those nonsense. But, okay, two weeks because we want to limit the impact on hospitals. Oh, wait a second. People need to be forced to avoid behavior that might result in hospitalization. Had they lost their minds? And, and, and so and so. But to be fair, as, as the book documents, lots of Americans were already quarantining themselves on their own. And so you need people like that. You need to find out what you get from that. Does that protect you from it? New York would indicate that it really doesn't be as two thirds of those who were sheltering in place as of May of 2020, they were in, they were in hospitals of the, of the hospitalized two thirds have been sheltering in place. You also need people like my occasionally exasperating wife, only occasionally who was washing her hands fastidiously. And we'd be going down a sidewalk and she'd jump away. If, if, if someone was coming past us, you need people like that. And, the, and again, my wife was taking precautions well in advance of the lockdowns because she was nervous and she and but you also you need the people who reject expert opinion we are all big fans here of george gilder and it's got to be stressed that the people who reject expert opinion are most crucial of all when you're looking for an answer about why something is spreading the people who would go to every bar go to every party make out with every girl and guy you want to find out for what they're doing, if what they're doing is associating with bad health outcomes, with bad, with more hospitalization. The people who reject what the experts say are your most crucial sources of information of all because they're kind of your control group. Yet politicians in their infinite wisdom chose one size fits all, which didn't help us understand how the virus is spreading. It blinded us. You need everyone trying something different. Free people produce information. And when we needed freedom the most, because we needed information the most, because, as you point out, the virus was more serious than the flu, we blinded society. And the argument is, but we had to protect them from themselves, John. Don't you understand? Precisely. Protect them from themselves as though, as though human beings have ever needed an incentive to avoid hospitalization, to avoid sick, to avoid sickness, and in the rarest instances, death, the very notion, and then just the arrogance of, it. oh, wait, something threatens your life. And so we as politicians must take away your freedom, must take away your, your, your jobs, must take away your life's work in the form of a business to protect you. Because if you were free, you would engage in behavior associated with sickness and death. Have you ever heard of something more ludicrous? And what makes me sad is that so many people accepted this notion that we needed to sacrifice at this time. 
I'm going to turn your attention a, a little bit uh, away from the beginning of the virus. Well, actually not now that I think about it. We had Ronald Bailey on the show and he shared with us that Mo the Moderna company had uh, taken the, the genome sequence that was sent to them by the Chinese in uh, January 19th, I believe it was, of 2020 and had produced their 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 virus, uh, their their uh, their vaccine uh, and had the prototype in less than 48 hours, which leaves out about January 21st of 2020. So before it even hit our radar, a vaccine had been developed and the rest of the time was spent with delays in the approval process of the same government that shut us down. If, if there's anything about this that gets me violent, it's that 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 the, the fact that this virus was withheld from human beings for so long under the guise of we have to make sure it's safe for you. Oh, you, you speak to me. Uh, can you imagine? So they already have the, the cure. They already have the vaccination. But but again, again, I can't say it better than what you just said. To me, the right to try is so fundamental in this, and people were disallowed. Now, again, this is what we don't know. So I've run this by someone that I'm guessing both of you either know or are familiar with, uh, the investor Rob or not. We've discussed the vaccination, and he's made the point that if they allow people access to the va vaccine right away, no one dies of the coronavirus. But he's argued that the vast majority of those who died would have died anyway. Which gets back to the point that New York Times has made almost from day one. It's hidden in these alarmist articles about the virus, is that the vast majority of deaths were associated with very sick, very old people in nursing homes. Now, again, that's not me trying to minimize old people, but what a tragedy that we would shut down the global economy. Uh, to protect uh, one group in society that, that was already very sick and already dying. So again, I guess that's what I don't know. And, and, and I'm not, pres I presume no health knowledge. I just think it's interesting to point out that what happens if the, if we people have access to the vaccine right away, which they should have, does it change the death rate? I wonder. Yeah. And we can't know you're, you're certainly correct about that. But I think the thing that, that, bothers me is the whole the the the, the notion of you know uh, and even uh, even if you buy that the FDA should exist in the first place which we've done shows with Mary Ruart that we don't think it does <laughs> needs to but even if you buy it there's got to be a difference between approving a drug to say reduce high blood pressure which we all have because of this situation <laughs> um <laughs> And preventing a and preventing you getting a disease and a vaccine. That's it's a it's a different framework. It's a different metaphor. Yes, you want to prove that it does what it says it's going to do. But a, a vaccine doesn't. And once you prove that it's safe, you inject it into a thousand people, and if no one dies immediately, well, let it go. Let it out into the the the, the universe. Well, it, and I, I would just and and I realize I'm being idealistic. Who cares if it's safe? Why can't people just try? Why, why can't – what incentive does a drug company have to produce a vaccine only to say, oh, yeah, just let's just throw it onto the marketplace? Uh, and, and if lots of people die, so what? Implicit in a drug company saying we've got a vaccine is that drug company saying, you know, we've tested it on our own control group, people who have presumably volunteered. We think this is safe. At that point, over and done with. 
you know, I'm guessing the three of us know why it's not that simple. And the way I've always heard it actually from drug companies is they like having the FDA around because if you and I today come up with a cure for pancreatic cancer, some sort of pharma drug that will solve it, good luck to you and I getting it on out in the market. We would have to sell it to a major pharma company to get that drug out there. And so the, the FDA exists to some degree as a protector from outside competition, I think. I don't want to sound all conspiratorial. I'm not. I love big pharma, but I've heard from them that they actually like the existence of the FDA. No, just just like the, you know, any any companies once they establish themselves in the marketplace, like the idea of being able to regulation. You know, Facebook is all about regulation now. But yep. the the, uh, the last thing I want to uh, talk to you about, and then I have got some other questions on different subjects for you for the last segment. But are are you concerned that politicians will panic again in the future, specifically over China? And maybe ask you this: Are they already? Uh, yeah, I'm terrified. That's why the books second to last chapter makes a case that we can't make this a numerical argument. We can't make this well. You know, the New York Times says that half of the virus deaths are associated with nursing homes. The CDC says that 90% plus were very sick people with all sorts of comorbidities. It's got to begin and end with freedom. Because if we don't make it about freedom as its own virtue, freedom, the producer of information, freedom, the producer of economic growth, that is the biggest enemy that uh, death and disease have ever known. If we don't make it just about that, we set the stage for future lockdowns. Because anytime you make a statistical argument, you're, you're implying that there's, there's some number, there's some rate, rate of death among young people, I don't know that would allow politicians to take away our freedom again, to destroy our businesses again, to destroy our, our uh, means of making a living again. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I refuse that. And so I am terrified of that, that a statistical argument will lead to future lockdowns simply because this isn't the last virus to reach the United States. And I certainly think, I'm glad that you brought up China. It's very clear that even people on our side are trying to defend what politicians did that the Chinese did did this to us. Oh my goodness. Wouldn't politicians love it if they could pass this off on the Chinese? Because it would give them deniability for the panic they did that was so destructive to the American people. No, no, no. American politicians did not have to do what they did. They did not have to take away our freedom and let's not let them get away with that. Wow. All right. Well, hopefully I'm going to take some breaths, turn it over to Ron because we have to pay our bills, John, and I know you appreciate that. <laughs> so I want to remind folks that they can t contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Our bonus show, which is on Patreon, patreon.com slash TSOE is sponsored by 90 Minds. Need a mind? Hire one at 90minds.com. Right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, 
package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with John Tamney, the author of When Politicians Panic. And John, one of the points you make beautifully in the book is that wealth creation has solved most of our medical issues. And you profile Rockefeller, John Hopkins, you could go on and on. Koch brothers, Sloan, uh, you know, Mayo brothers, maybe. Um, talk about that, because I think that's a really important point, that wealth is the ultimate get out of, you know, get out of these crises. I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a crucial point. I, I, I stress, as you know, that the book is not a medical book, but I thought it was essential to have an early chapter giving a basic sketch of, of medical history. And so you go back to the 19th century, and during that time, if you broke your femur, you had one in three chance of death. But if you lived, your only operation, your only option was amputation. If you broke your hip, dead. When you were born in the 19th century, you had as good of a chance of dying as you did living. Cancer, forget about it. You were going to die, but most people never got cancer. Tuberculosis and pneumonia got them first. Even moving into the 20th century, in 1910, cancer was still a distant eighth among American killers because these other viruses got us first and, and these diseases. And so what happened? Well, economic growth happened. Johns Hopkins uh, for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, $7 million to what became his namesake university, the largest donation to a school ever, and it included the creation of a medical school. This was the first real medical school in the United States with doctors looking for ways to extend life. John D. Rockefeller, in his lifetime alone, gave away $530 million. 450 of it went to medical science. And so suddenly, what used to kill us was no longer. People were literally dying once, twice, three times, but living. World War I was the first war in history that more people died from gunshots and bombs than they did from just basic disease. And so what changed? Again, it was this economic growth. It produced the resources that made it possible for doctors and scientists to figure out uh, ways around to cure what used to so readily kill us. And so with a virus spreading in 2020, 
politicians inexplicably they chose economic desperation they they chose wealth destruction as the path to fighting a virus historians will marvel at their abject stupidity what could they have possibly been thinking poverty's always been mankind's biggest killer yet they chose it they chose it globally poverty as the way to mitigate the virus yeah it's <laughs> you're so right about that and, and the only known antidote to poverty is wealth creation yeah. <laughs> um, you also have another chapter, chapter five, where you say don't insult recessions by referring to this as a recession. You know, Gene Epstein called this the great suppression, which I've always loved. But then you argue in that chapter that recession is actually a sign of recovery. Explain that. Recessions are recovery. It We set the seeds of our demise during the good times. That's when we plant the seeds of, of mistakes because we get maybe a little bit more careless. The businesses maybe hire people they wouldn't hire during less flush times. And so recessions are the time in which we correct our mistakes. We fix what we're doing wrong. And that's why when recessions are untouched, a boom is, is, is the next step because the recessions are the recovery. That's when we fix what we're doing wrong and improve our processes. In this case, this wasn't a recession. This was a forced contraction. Implicit in what they're, they're saying, there's a corona recession. Implicit is that we did this. No, no, no. Politicians took away our livelihoods. They took away our freedom. They centrally tried to centrally plan outcomes. And the result was an economic contraction. Well, that's what always happens when central planning is, is in place. The Soviet Union never had recessions. It just had constant nonstop lack of economic growth. So did the old China. So does North Korea today. And so I make the point there that let's not insult recessions, which are a sign of an economy recovering by saying that this is what we're going through now. No, politicians panicked. They took away our freedom. They destroyed, needlessly destroyed businesses and jobs. Do not insult recessions by calling this a recession. Yeah, you, I love it. You say command and control actually asphyxiates an economy. It doesn't There was no boom and busts uh, in the uh, Soviet Union. No. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. Um, the other thing, talking about the you know the bailouts, the PPP loans, all that kind of junk that the government did with outrageous spending, you say far from being, and this is pretty controversial, I think, to most people, far from being the engines of economic growth, small businesses and the jobs they create are most often a consequence of big business. Explain yes, uh, there's just no getting around it. There's 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 this. I guess you'd call it a populist argument. If, I suppose populist is kind of an amorphous word at this point. But um, there's this argument that small businesses are the engine of the American economy, the backbone of it. And so it's essential for the government that had destroyed all sorts of small businesses to revive them. No, 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 no. Nothing against small businesses. I love them. I love – I think every business is a miracle. But small businesses are usually a consequence. They, they cluster around the big ones. Um, Apple, the, the number is somewhat dated, but you know, in 2015, Apple employed 63,000 people in Cupertino, California. But the number of, of jobs in Cupertino that were a consequence of Apple were many multiples of that. And this, this is true in any city or, or locale where there's a big business. The businesses that cluster around them 
the baristas, the lawyers, the doctors, the personal trainers, the restaurants, the wineries, you name it. The small businesses grow, are there because they're serving the big business. And so there's this popular notion back in 2020, oh yeah, we've wrecked all these small businesses. To revive the economy, let's extract more wealth from the economy we just destroyed and hand it to small businesses. How very backwards. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. Um, <laughs> you also talk about the uh, GDP being, you know, double counting. Politicians love it because, of course, it tracks consumption. But consumption is the consequences of economic growth, not the cause of it. Again, yep. why do so many people misunderstand this? Even the press, the popular press. The press misunderstand it because they don't think of economies in terms of the way they should. All economics is micro because all economics is about the individual. And as individuals, even members of the media know that their consumption is a consequence of what they produce first. If they write more articles, if they're more productive at the New York Times or Bloomberg or you, you name your journalistic outlet, probably the more wealth, the, the, the more income they'll have, which means they can consume more. So they, I think they intuitively get it, but they see an economy as some big blob. But yes, there's no doubt that consumption is what happens after we produce. And so you look at a number like GDP, it's at best a consequence of the actual economic growth that occurred because they say that two-thirds of GDP is, is consumption. No, all economic growth is production. And then you look at GDP in a broader sense, it increases when government spending increases, which is a monument to double counting. It's such corrupt accounting as to make the, the most crooked Enron-style accountants blush. Oh, really? Oh, wait, you're going to extract wealth from the economy, put it into another set of hands and grow the economy? Based on that, we should legalize theft. Because what's the difference? Let's just, yeah, with the economy's weak, let's just go to the rich areas and, and, and lift money from those people and go out and spend it. Well, as, as we well know, as we would just, uh, just a basic little bit of common sense know that uh, you can only stimulate the depressed by depressing the stimulated. Um, there's no economic growth here, yet GDP registers economic growth when government extracts wealth and then hands it to other people. Uh, GDP actually goes down uh, the more that foreign investment flows into the United States. The most bullish signal you could ever possibly think of actually brings GDP down. It's just a tragically worthless number. And of course, the more governments bail out businesses that the markets don't want and just keep them operating, that actually increases GDP when we know it's actually a weight on economic growth. Yeah, no, you just, you just told the supply side mandate beautifully. I mean, consumption is the consequence of growth. And it's the easy part. Like you say, production is harder. And I think it was George Gilder who wrote in his 81 book, Wealth and Poverty. Even Marx understood this. After all, he didn't want to socialize the means of consumption. Absolutely. You know, Marx, uh, Jude Winiski always said the same thing. He said Marx is, was actually a great classical economic thinker. He just had a different viewpoint for, for the end result. But everyone knew these things back then. Uh, it, it's amazing that Keynes, was able to develop such a following. And, and even he, to be fair, ultimately said 
described his following as those fools. Uh, the people who've uh, inherited his ideas have completely bastardized them in the first place. It used to just be broadly understood that, yeah, you know, if you want to consume things, that's what happens after you produce. And so if you want lots of consumption, reduce the barriers to production. Uh, somehow economics has been turned on its head in modern times, and uh, it's up to us to change the, change the narrative. John, are you worried about all the spending coming down the pike? I mean, not only what we spent last year, but what, what is being proposed for this year? <laughs> it's in the trillions. It's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. How can you not be worried about it? Um, what frustrates me about our side is that I and, and I'm not I'm not accusing you of this. I would rather not talk about the numbers and then just say, government shouldn't be doing these things. I would rather be vivifying what would happen if government weren't spending so much. Think of all the apples, uh, the new Amazons. Think of all the businesses that would be created that would make the present look primitive by comparison if politicians weren't consuming so much of the wealth that is always and everywhere created in the private sector. I mean, yeah. we know that central planning doesn't work in total, so why do we think it works in limited fashion. As a rule, it creates stasis and usually much worse because politicians are constrained by the known. And I just think the mistake our side makes is by talking in terms of deficits and, and different things. How about talk about what happens when, the, when innovators get access to capital? They put supercomputers in our pockets. They put us in private planes. They cure diseases. What happens when government gets gets its hands on it? At best, it can preserve the present and can only do so in a way that's really unappealing. Yeah, you make the point that if government allocates the capital, the the outrageous ideas are gonna are, are not gonna get those those dollars, and and that's where you get the Peloton and you know your groceries delivered and all those great things. Um, and as Bezos said, you know, I made billions of dollars of failures at Amazon. Thank heaven it's for a, those people. You've got to have the experimentation. Let's never forget, government is constrained by the known. It cannot be an investor. I mean, I use this example all the time, and, and I use it in, in, in when politicians panic, that for the longest time, government was trying to restrain Blockbuster. Remember, they wouldn't allow the, the merger between Blockbuster and Movie Gallery because <laughs> the dominance in the home, in the home video rental space was going to be too great. And so they're focused on the present. They're focused on the known only for Netflix, this company that had begged Blockbuster in the past to purchase it, to come around and just destroy the business model altogether. And so here is the problem with government spending is as a rule, it's focused on the present, whereas entrepreneurs, by their very name, they have a vision for the future that everyone else rejects because if everyone else didn't reject it, they wouldn't be entrepreneurs. Existing businesses would be trying their ideas. They're create, they're rushing an, a wildly different future into the present. And so when you have government as the size consumer of wealth, as a rule, you have government suffocating the arrival of the future because there's just not enough experimentation going on. And I hate that our side can't make this argument better, that we're so focused on deficits and what's going to happen and are we going to become Greece? Oh, what nonsense. Why not talk about the beauty? 
of the, of the yeah. experimentation that always results when 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 private people are matched with capital as opposed to government matching people with capital yeah the dynamism uh, you know i think gilder said the dog is the politician's best friend so knowledge is always about the past but entrepreneurship is about the future well john this has just been great unfortunately we're up against our our next break and folks i'd like to remind you if you want to contact me or ed send us an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com check out patreon.com slash tsoe where you can subscribe to our show and our bonus episodes and that uh channel is now uh, sponsored by 90 minds it's a matter of mind check them out at 90minds.com and now a word from our sponsor sage follow us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Author of When Politicians Panicked and They're Both Wrong is our guest today, John Tamney. John, I've got a question for you that um, it's it's a little little uh, it's a different angle. Let's put it this way. So George Gilder, three time guest of the Solar Enterprise, wrote the forward to your book. So that's always appealing to us as well. But recently, you you appeared on a video about six months ago for the Atlas Society. Ayn Rand used the occasion of her last public speech to take down George Gilder and his book Wealth and Poverty. Square that up in your mind for me. What was her, the context in which she took him down? I, I, t- I went after George once on his book, um, Life After Google. <laughs> and he was, he was still nice enough to write the forward for this one. So I'm thinking my argument was pretty good. I thought wealth and poverty was brilliant um, in my case. And, and I've always said to George that I – you should let me get away with not liking life after Google and writing a bad review of it because there is no living writer that I can think of who quotes you more than I do. And so he seemed to accept that. 
But what didn't Ayn Rand like about Wealth she, she really despised the concept that he said that that uh, altruism is is the is an in, is the index right uh, that 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 profit is an index of our altruism. Yeah, um, <laughs> look, I, I get her point. Uh, everything we do ultimately is driven by some sort of uh, self elevation. I, um, but, uh, I don't think I, I think she overdid it on that. I think George would probably ultimately agree that, yeah, there's, there's, uh, what's the word selfishness is at the root of the, of, of the things we do capitalism wise. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that, that, uh, capitalism is incredibly compassionate that it lifts up those with the least. And I think sometimes Randians have trouble with it. I like to say that about myself that I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a mud of all these things. I worship <laughs> industrialists, but uh, I take ideas from all of them. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think Rand had a tendency to, to take words that had other definitions, define them the way she wanted to define them and then eviscerate you if you didn't agree with her definition. Yeah, and, and to be fair, you know, Ayn Rand thought that Gerald Ford was a great president. So it's not as though she got everything right. And I've heard some rumor that Mises or Hayek, one of them debated her once and brought her to tears. And so, you know, she had some weaknesses there. But uh, uh, the, the, the muscular nature of her writing, um, I can't get enough of. I, I love it. I, I, love this, I love how she celebrated uh, the entrepreneurial class and in fairness, so does George Gilder. And so I just think that some of this is nitpicking. I, I agree. I think this, some of it is, is just, you know, the, 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 uh, the infighting among people who, who agree is sometimes worse than uh, the, those outside of our, our thoughts. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, Along those lines, though, do you think we're in a, as Ayn would say, Ayn Rand would say, a a sanction of the victim situation? Are we there right now? No. What? Tell me what exactly what you mean by so that. So she would say, sanction of the victim, like we, we, the, the, we because why we don't go to Galt's Gulch? Why 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 do you continue to write? Why do Ron and I continue to do this show? Well, you know, shouldn't we just be going to Galt's Galt's Gulch? Gulch because we're 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 just feeding in to the very people who want to destroy us. Um, I, I disagree with her. I, I, I let me, and I say that as someone who believes that to pick up my uh, Atlas Shrugged is to always pick up a book in the moment. You know, so I read it in 1994 and I thought, oh, it's just like now. Uh, Michael Milken had just been put in prison, the greatest capitalist who ever lived. I thought that I was living it at the time, but I know people felt the same in 2008. I, there's no doubt people feel the same right now. I mean, you, you take just a low life like Fauci and you could so easily put him into Atlas Shrugged as one of these just the fourth rate, government bureaucrats just looking uh, uh, swaggering around with none of it being their own i mean it's just it's timeless but i reject i just i reject the negativity of that i i can't get beyond my belief that as bad as it gets at times an awful day in the united states is a remarkable day anywhere else Let's never forget that our Great Depression was a boom time for anywhere else in the world. Uh, Johnny Agnelli, the great fiat chairman, when he came to New York City in the 1930s, he was blown away by all the wealth. 
And so we have a tendency, is government too large? Yes. Is government doing things that it should not do? Check, 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 check. Uh, Was this a, a human rights tragedy? All these things I'm agreeing with. Boy, we are lucky to be American. I, I, I can't get over that. And I think when we complain too much and we say, you know, this is it, it, it's that old line, oh, yeah, America's over with. People have been betting against the United States since before as the United States, and they've never been right. Uh, people like Warren Buffett have gotten rich buying from these pessimists. Um, if, if someone out there is certain that the United States is over with, please tell me because that we'll make a lot of money on that bet. But so far, shorting this country has been a fool's errand, and it's been, it's been the path to insolvency. And, and let me beg your indulgence on a question that is, I think, a little bit negative. We got about two minutes left, but uh, I, I really wanted to ask you this: Why no inflation? Why haven't we seen inflation with all of the the, the spending and and uh, going on in the in in Washington? Well, because spending, you're going to kill me on this, has nothing to do with inflation. Look, England had. Uh, government's uh, deficits of 260 percent of GDP in 1815. There's no inflation. The pound was on that was defined in terms of gold. Uh, we had uh, deficits well over 100 percent of GDP after World War II. Where was the inflation? Well, we defined the dollar as one thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold. And this isn't me making some polemic about the gold standard, but it is me saying that that inflation is a, is a choice. It's a choice. Governments choose to devalue. They choose to police the citizenry. They choose to reduce what they, to, to basically share their spending on the backs of their people. So inflation's a choice. Now, why has there been no inflation? Well, it, it's all in how you measure it. You can make the number whatever you want it to be. If we measured inflation today the way we did in the 1970s, uh, the George W. Bush years in particular would have been massively inflationary. But if you take out the commodities most sensitive to the dollar's devaluation, you can hide all sorts of things. And so I think that there's been devaluation throughout time. When people focus on prices, it's like focus on blaming wet sidewalks or blaming rain on wet sidewalks. It's just reversing course. You know, to value the currency, that's inflation. To me, that's end of story. Uh, the, the, the dollar is, is worth quite a bit less than it was 50 years ago. Yeah, we've had inflation. If government wants to measure it different in different ways, uh, that's not my problem. And that's why I'm not going to focus on it. But I do think it's a mistake to associate spending with inflation. Fair enough. No, great answer. And well, we're already we're against the the, uh, the end of our show here. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We have Patrick Reason over Ed, the filmmaker of the documentary. They say it can't be done. Well, I look forward to that. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so that organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post our full show notes with our interview with John today and where you can find more about him. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at barrisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.
Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started? 